And it's based on that anointing, as it says in Proverbs, it's based on that, that each time when he takes up an important and significant role or phase in the plan of salvation, God the Father anoints him again to fulfill that capacity and he mentions his sonship and again and again. And so the sonship of Christ, brothers and sisters, Christ being the only begotten Son of God, is not something that we go on about because we just want to push something. It is the most important thing that qualifies Christ to do what he does, according to God the Father. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this evening is looking at prophet and priest and king. And of course, as soon as I mention that, this uh, summarizes uh, the three distinct offices that our Savior holds. He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. And uh, these three uh, are very significant because they are related to each other, as, as we shall see. Uh, and the relationship to each other is, is of significant uh, import for us. So I want to spend some time looking at each one and uh, what we can learn in that process, uh, hopefully to help us appreciate more Christ and what He has done and what He has accomplished. This is the purpose, this is the, the objective that we want to uh, look at. And uh, in looking at these three offices that uh, the Scripture assigns for Christ, and these are His offices as our Savior, as our Redeemer, of course, uh, we need to also keep in mind that these three offices are consecutive. They are not held by Christ simultaneously, but they are consecutive. Each one actually prepares for the next. And we're going to see why that is so as well as, as we progress. And so the first one that uh, we're going to look at is, is prophet. And uh, this, of course, is dealt with in a number of places. Uh, one of the earliest is in Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles or the scriptures are on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 is our first verse. And here in Deuteronomy 18, 15, it says, Moses speaking, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye, unto him ye shall hearken. Here, this is a prophecy about a prophet who would come. This prophecy, of course, is relating, uh, is about Christ. It's a prophecy about Christ. He is said to come as a prophet. And then it says, he will be of thy brethren. Now, if we were to define what a prophet is, how would you explain that? Or if we ask the question, what is a prophet? A seer. Okay, a seer, that's true. What, what does that mean? What is the, the role, what is the purpose or function of a prophet? A messenger. Okay, well, some people are sometimes a, a mouthpiece for God or a spokesperson for God or one who relays the message from God to the people. That's what a prophet is. And so Christ here is prophesied to come as a prophet. Now, of course, Christ is the ultimate prophet. We see that uh, his, one of his names is the Word of God. And we're going to see that in a few verses. But, uh, you know, in John it says uh, that the Word was with God and was, uh, and was God. And then the Word was made flesh. And that name for Christ as the Word signifies his function as the mouthpiece for God. But in the plan of salvation and as a redeemer, in a special sense, here Christ is prophesied to come. And when he comes, he will be a prophet. And also the fact that he will come as a man. A few verses later, 
he goes into more detail, verse 18 and 19. He says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Here it gives us a bit more of a definition of what this prophet will accomplish. And he will have God's words in his mouth. So when Christ comes, he will speak, he will declare that which is given to him of God. He will function first and foremost in this capacity as a prophet. Now, the prophet here, when it says, from among your brethren, or uh, in the earlier verse, of thy brethren, here it's referring specifically to the fact that when Christ comes as a prophet, he will come as a human being, as a man, as a brother to us. And so these three offices of Christ relate to him as a man, which is his, word, which is his capacity as a savior or as a redeemer. Of course, when Christ was on here, uh, here on earth, he said that very plainly. John 12, 49 tells us, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. So Christ, when he was on earth, he was speaking the words that God gave to him. He was fulfilling that prophecy that Moses said, Out of your brethren will arise a prophet like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Christ actually refers to himself as a prophet as well. And uh, in Luke 13, 33, we see that. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Christ here was referring to who? To himself. He was making this comment because he knew that in Jerusalem is where he would actually be uh, killed. That he, would, that he would die. And this was close to the time of the end of his ministry. You see, many times when we talk about Christ... His office and his work as a prophet is not usually emphasized. We talk a lot about him as priest and we talk a lot about him as king. But before he was either, he first was a prophet. And it was in his work as a prophet that he accomplished some of the most significant uh, events in the plan of salvation, as we shall see. Uh, and his work as a prophet is what qualifies him for the next stage, as, as we shall see as well. So I just want us to keep that in mind because it might even sound a little strange referring to Christ as a prophet. Uh, because we just, it's not something that we commonly see Christ as. But the scripture makes that very clear. In uh, Matthew 13 as well, we're familiar with this verse, verse 57. And they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And so Christ is recognized as a prophet in his day by many people. His disciples, he referred to himself as such. It was, it was understood that Christ came as a fulfillment of that prophecy, that he was that prophet. And Peter, when he was uh, preaching before the Pharisees, he actually quotes that prophecy of Moses and applies it as being fulfilled uh, by Christ in Acts chapter 3. And this is what he says, verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, unto, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. 
Here Peter was of course quoting that verse we found in Deuteronomy and saying this is the prophet. He was obviously, and he told them, you know, God sent Christ in fulfillment of that prophecy and you killed him. You were his betrayers and you were his murderers. Now Christ's work in each capacity, as we shall see, is uh, recognized officially by heaven in a very important ceremony and event. And, and we're going to trace that as we go along uh, in our study this evening together. Uh, and the work of Christ as a prophet is first sanctioned and uh, officiated or, or made official by heaven in this particular uh, ceremony. And that ceremony, of course, is an anointing. We read about that in uh, Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Notice how Peter here expresses it. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So it tells us that before Christ went about doing good, he was first anointed. Now, which event is being referred to here when Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit? Okay, of course, this is referring to his baptism. So at the baptism of Christ, there was an anointing with the Holy Spirit where his work as prophet was officially recognized and begun. And you remember at the baptism, uh, who anointed Christ with the Holy Spirit? It was his father. Remember what else he said? This is my... Beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Two very important factors I want us to keep in mind as we go along. At the anointing of Christ with the Spirit to commence his work as prophet, his sonship is mentioned by the Father. He is anointed by the Father and his sonship is mentioned. I want us to keep that in mind because we find that this is a recurring pattern. And uh, we'll see why it is a recurring pattern. But of course, uh, a little later uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, a similar thing happened and the father spoke and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. The reason why we are to hear and heed the words of Christ is because he is the son. That's what gives authority to what he has to say. Because as the son, what he says are actually whose words? We saw. They're the words of the father because God says, I will put my words in him. And so this is his work as a prophet. And then the, the, the passage also, this verse tells us what he will do in that capacity. Being anointed with the Holy Spirit with power. Then he went about and did what? He did good. He healed those who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. This is what qualifies Christ. And this is also a description of the work of Christ. Doing, about, uh, uh, sorry, doing good, healing that were oppressed of the devil, shows us that the work of Christ was to meet the devil head on and deliver those who were ensnared by Satan. As a matter of fact, it was uh, the work of Christ as a prophet that accomplished the defeat of Satan. Christ met sin and defeated sin. He condemned sin in the flesh and he defeated Satan and defeated death. All these things he accomplished as a prophet. Very, very significant part of the plan of salvation. A crucial part of the plan of salvation. This was his work as a prophet. Now, uh, this work of uh, being a prophet is what prepared him for the next stage, as we shall see. But there is an interesting type or a pattern in, in the scriptures uh, of someone else who was a prophet 
And then they became a priest because this is the offices of Christ, prophet and priest and king. And the person I'm thinking of is a few examples, but the one I'm thinking of is Aaron. If you remember when God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt, God told Moses, see, I have made thee a God to Pharaoh and Aaron, thy brother shall be thy prophet. Do you remember that? In other words, Aaron was a spokesperson for Moses. And then later on in the wilderness, when the tabernacle was constructed, God told Moses to then anoint Aaron as the high priest. And so we see this progression. And this was in part there, a type for the work of Christ, who was first prophet, and then he became priest. And uh, we will see that a little, a little bit as well. So if we were to chart our findings so far, just to summarize here, because this helps us visualize things when we see a little illustration, it helps me. Uh, Christ is the word, he's made flesh, and we find that at uh, the baptism of Christ there is his anointing, where the Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and this is his uh, official role, fulfilling the prophecy as a prophet. He functioned in that capacity as a prophet. So the beginning of his work in, in functioning that capacity is recognized by an anointing. So we want to go to the next one. And his next office that follows that is priest. That's how we know him most commonly, uh, perhaps because that's how he is right now. He is now our high priest. So we want to see this transition. When did it actually happen? And what can we learn from it? Obviously, uh, he could not be a priest before he first finished his work as a Prophet, because like we said, they, these, these uh, functions, they don't overlap. They actually are consecutive. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, and we read verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. It says here, Whither the forerunner, speaking of uh, heaven and the heavenly things and the holiest places there in heaven, whither the forerunner is for us has entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Christ was made a high priest, after he went to heaven or after his ascension and not before. Now this is an interesting point to keep in mind because on earth he was a prophet. That's his work on earth as a prophet until he met sin and Satan on the cross. The next stage is when he becomes priest. And of course, that's when he goes to heaven. We'll read a few verses just to make sure that our conclusion is, is correct. Hebrews 9.11 but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Of course, the book of Hebrews deals with the work of Christ. It focuses primarily on the work of Christ as a priest. And here Paul, or the author of Hebrews, tells us that Christ is being come and high priest of good things to come. Interestingly enough, the Gospels deal with Christ's role and work as a prophet. Gives us all these details about his work as a prophet, what he accomplished. The book of Hebrews primarily focuses on Christ as a priest, which is the next stage after Christ ascended to heaven. Now, as we found, just as Christ was, before he commenced his work publicly as a prophet, he was anointed. It was recognized by an anointing from the Father. And we find that before Christ began to work as a priest, a similar thing occurred. Christ had to be anointed as a priest before he fulfilled that particular role or capacity. Now, where do we read about Christ being anointed as a priest? 
We read it at the beginning, actually, of the book of Hebrews, which deals with his priesthood. It begins right there. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Notice what it says. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Some interesting uh, details here I don't want us to miss. First of all here, who is speaking? God the Father, and he's speaking to? The Son. So here the Sonship is mentioned. And then the Son is anointed with this oil, excuse me, of gladness. What does that represent or symbolize? The Holy Spirit. Now, someone might think, well, Christ was already anointed at his baptism. Why is he anointed here again? Now, the, the reason why he is anointed is given in the verse. What's the reason that Christ is anointed this time? It is because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. When did Christ demonstrate a love for righteousness and a hatred for iniquity? All during his life as a prophet. As a man, when he was on earth, he demonstrated day in and day out when he was meeting with temptation that he loved righteousness and hated iniquity all the way up to the cross and he accomplished that. Now God recognizes the accomplishment of that and he says, now because you have fulfilled that role or that capacity successfully, now I'm anointing you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. This anointing here is the commencement of Christ's work as the high priest of his people. He is uh, anointed by the Father to be the high priest of his people, to rule as a righteous priest in the hearts of his people. Not only that, oh sorry, not only that, but his work as a priest directly relates to doing something for his people to bring them up to a certain level. And we're going to come to that as well. Now, when we talk about Christ being anointed as a priest here, I want to, uh, I want to just clarify a little bit because sometimes people either get confused or because of certain assumptions that have, uh, have been in our minds for a long time, uh, some things you know, are hard to accept. There is, there is a a common Adventist myth that Christ has always been a high priest in heaven long before he came to earth, long before he came a man. And the reason why I say it's, it's, a, it's an Adventist myth is, is a few reasons, but because we believe that the priesthood of Christ is very important. We're actually told it's everything to us as a people. It's the foundation of our faith, the sanctuary doctrine, and particularly the role of Christ as a priest. And because it is so important, there is this natural assumption that, well, that's how it's always been. But the reason why I say it is a myth is because there is actually absolutely no evidence whatsoever to suggest that. We're going to look at a couple of verses, but... The reason why I'm emphasizing this because it actually helps us appreciate the, the order and the way that God set up the plan of salvation. Things are not all over the place. There is a certain order. It helps us appreciate God's uh, you know, genius plan, but also it helps us understand that Christ has different functions and different roles in each capacity. The hope is that we can relate and understand what Christ is doing better. Anyway, let's look at a few verses. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. It says, If therefore perfection were by, were by the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it the people received the law. What further need was there? That another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Here, the argument of Paul here is very, very simple and very profound. He's telling them, listen, the Aaronic priesthood was not good enough. And the evidence is, why would there, need, why would there be a need for another priest to arise? Indicating that during the Aaronic priesthood, that other priest was not functioning as a priest yet. Christ was still to become a priest in the future. And then it says, for the priesthood being changed. Which priesthood was changed? The Aaronic priesthood was changed when Christ took on that role or that capacity or that function. In other words, you don't have multiple priesthoods running simultaneously. There wasn't a priesthood on earth and a priesthood in heaven running at the same time. It was actually because there was no priesthood in heaven that God instituted this earthly priesthood to fill in that time as an object lesson, and we'll see that a bit more in detail, until that priest should arise. That's not the only verse, but we'll look at a few verses. Are you with me so far? This, this sequence is, is, is important because if you think about it, if there already was a priest in heaven, a high priest in heaven during that time, then why did God institute the Aaronic priesthood? Because obviously it wasn't good enough. Why would God give them an inferior priesthood if the superior priesthood was already in place? There's absolutely no reason for God to do that. And he didn't do that. Uh, like I said, a few more verses. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Speaking of Christ, he's saying every priest has to have, have, to have, has to have something to offer. What did Christ have that he offers? It's his life, particularly after he became a man. That's what he offered on the cross. And according to this verse, it says, if he was on earth, Christ would not be a priest. Is that right? So during his, during his work or his office as prophet, Christ was not a priest. That was to follow. And Christ could not be a priest before he had something to offer. Because otherwise he would have nothing to offer. That's why we're saying they're consecutive. And it's because of his love for righteousness and hatred for iniquity as a prophet while he was a man on earth. That's the reason. That's what actually qualifies him to be a faithful high priest. Are you looking to take your Bible study to the next level? Do you want to learn how to apply the Word of God in your daily life and share it more effectively with others? My Bible Academy is your online Bible school, offering a free, comprehensive, and dynamic program designed to deepen your understanding and engagement with the Bible. Take the next step in your spiritual growth and enroll to start a course at My Bible Academy today. The courses are designed to equip you with the tools and knowledge you need to share your faith with others. Visit nadamansour.com to enroll and start your learning journey today. That's nadamansour.com. See you there.
he could not be a high priest for people before he became a man like us. This is really the import and the point of the book of Hebrews, emphasizing these aspects. And that's why while Christ was on earth, there still was the Aaronic priesthood running with very few days to go. It came unto an end when Christ then went to heaven and took up that, well, when he died, obviously that ended that system. But when he was going to become the priest, then there was no more need for the earthly priesthood. The eyes would be directed now to the heavenly. So if we were to chart this uh, on our uh, table here, Christ's work as a priest begins at, sorry, I'll just put that here. I don't want to run too far ahead. Christ was anointed as the high priest for his people in Hebrews 1.8, the verse that we read, and the corresponding event that happened in heaven, the corresponding event that happened on earth was the day of Pentecost, when Christ was anointed. And uh, of course, this is the commencement of his work as priest, the high priest of his people. And this is really the, uh, the time period of Christ as a divine human being. What we're dealing with here is Christ as Savior, as Redeemer. And Christ, to be a Savior and a Redeemer, he had to be a man. And, of course, when he was born, this is when uh, his existence as a man began. And as a man, of course, his name is Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yeshua. Some people like to use that name. For the very first time ever in the existence of the universe, you had a divine human being. This is a very, very important event. Christ here becoming flesh. When Christ was born on earth, this, something new and amazing happened for the first time. You had a divine being who is also a human being. That's the man Christ Jesus. And in doing that, he actually uh, started something totally new. That's why he's referred to as, as the last Adam. Before that time, Christ was only a divine being. Correct? And as the divine being, we know his name was Michael, which means one who is like God. And that's why Christ could not fulfill some of these things before he became a man. Because Moses says he would be a prophet of thy brethren. And as a priest, he is a priest for men. He has to have something to offer. And so these unique and amazing roles of Christ are his because of him being a divine human being. You with me? It's very, very significant and, and quite interesting, uh, quite interesting too. Now, in his work as a prophet, and the reason why I want to emphasize some things, not to miss them. In Christ's work as a prophet, the prophet was to reveal or to speak the words of, of God. He would reveal what God has in mind, what God has in store. He would reveal God's plans, God's intentions, God's words. And that's what a prophet is. He's a mouthpiece to give to us, to bring to us what God has. And Christ accomplished that fully as a prophet. And he met with sin and Satan. And then he went back up to heaven. And as a priest, his work is actually now the opposite. As a priest, he stands as our representative and represents us and mediates for us on our behalf before God. And so he completes that circle. He links us completely with God. That's why he had to come down to be a man to bring to us what God had. That's, of course, the plan of salvation, the gospel. And we'll see that as well. Having defeated Satan, he goes back and now links us with God. The interesting thing we, we don't want to forget is Christ is a priest now who is a human 
being like us. We have a human being for the very first time in the history of the universe who shares the Father's throne. That's what qualifies him to be the one who fulfills that. And uh, yeah, and I, I just think that that's really neat. The whole plan of salvation is, is to bring us back to harmony with heaven. And Christ fulfills that in those two particular capacities. And that's what he's doing now. So uh, here's a question. How long is Christ going to remain as a priest? How long will Christ remain as a priest? We looked at some verses already. And uh, we'll look at some more here. Hebrews 7, 17. Notice what it says. For he testifieth our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here's a question. Will the priesthood of Christ come to an end? Yes or no? We have yes. We have some silence. And uh, sometimes there is no. So we want to see what the, what the answer is. Because there is, we know there is another role to fulfill. He's going to be king. And, and we, we said, well, the speaker just told us they don't overlap. So obviously that has to finish. <laughs> well, what does it mean when it says here, uh, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's look at another verse from the same book and see what Paul is talking about. Hebrews 8.1. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Repeatedly, this picture of Christ as sitting on the throne is brought out, particularly in the book of Hebrews. And sitting on the right hand of the throne is synonymous with him being priest. It's another way of uh, explaining or referring to his priesthood. He's sitting on the right hand of God's throne as a priest and as a man. Now, the reason why uh, I'm emphasizing that is, and I want us to keep this point in mind too, it doesn't mean that Christ is confined to constantly remain seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a reference to a position of the highest honor. This is what it's talking about. He occupies the position of the highest honor that there is. He shares the Father's throne, rightfully. Now, don't forget, he is occupying this position as a man, as a human being, one of our race. There is no other race in the entire universe that has this privilege. Only our race here on this poor little earth, sin-cursed earth, one of us is sitting on the throne of God as our high priest. That's what his priesthood really means to us. Brothers and sisters, if, if we really can comprehend that, that is absolutely amazing. That makes us, all of a sudden, the most honored race in the whole universe. Christ did not take on the nature of angels or the nature of any other creature that there is in, in the universe. We don't know them, but there, we, we understand that there are other beings. No, he came and took on the nature of man, our nature. He is a human being like us. That's what his priesthood is about. And he's sitting on the right hand of the throne. Of course, here, Paul is referring to a prophecy that comes from Psalm 110. We want to see how long is this duration? How long is he going to sit on the throne? Or how long is he going to be a priest? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord hath sworn and he will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is the prophecy when Christ was promised to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. God told him, you will sit on my right hand until something happens. Until what happens? Okay, the sin problem is gone. The verse tells us until I make your enemies 
your footstool. In other words, his work and his uh, fulfilling the capacity of high priest will continue until his enemies are his footstool. Paul, of course, understood that, that this right hand, sitting on the right hand of God, is for a time. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, he tells us that, verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now we understand that that's referring to his priesthood. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So here's Christ fulfilling this role. He's sitting on the right hand of God as a priest and he has this expectation. He has this desire. He has this longing. He's waiting for something to happen, for the next thing to happen, which is his enemies to be made his footstool. Of course, at which time he will no longer sit on the father's throne. Someone might think, whoa, that's a really strange statement. But that's linked with his priesthood, brothers and sisters. In other words, at that time, his priesthood will come to an end. So Christ is a priest forever, so long as that, uh, to fulfill the duration of finishing completely everything that is required of him in that capacity. Just as we understand that, uh, you know, uh, the fire of what's commonly known as hell uh, burns forever. In other words, it consumes completely and totally everything that there is to be consumed. It doesn't continue burning after it's accomplished its purpose. So in like manner, Christ is a priest forever until he fulfills completely and utterly what is needed in that capacity. And it's referred to here as the enemies being his, made his footstool. And that's when he will no longer occupy the Father's throne. And the reason is he will then have his own throne because the next stage is as king. And some will think, oh, well, that's a big insult. You know, you're going to take the Christ off the Father's throne. No, he's just going to get his own one. He doesn't have his own throne yet. He's a priest still. So that's in our picture right now. So at this time, I didn't put a throne there. But as a priest in that green section, uh, Christ is pictured as sitting on the right hand of the throne of God or the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we have a prophecy about him, and the next stage, of course, is him becoming king. We're going to have a, we'll see a prophecy now of when he will take his own throne. And this was revealed to Mary in Luke chapter 1 of verse 30. It says, For the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is a prophecy about Christ as king. This prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. One day, Christ is going to get up from his father's throne and he's going to occupy the throne of his father, David, his earthly father, David. In other words, he's going to sit and rule as a human king, a king for his people. It was misunderstanding some of these prophecies that the Jews had this expectation that Christ was going to do that when he first comes to earth. And it was because he didn't, some of them rejected him. But this, this is referring to his work as king. Not as prophet, but he had to be prophet first. As prophet, he had to meet Satan and die. 
Then he would begin his work as priest, which he is right now. But when that comes to an end, he will then take up his work as king. When will Christ sit on the throne of his father David? After his enemies are made? His footstool. And until that time, he is now sitting on the right hand of God, expecting that event. <clears throat> That's uh, what his work is. And just like we saw, Christ as a prophet and as a man, that's what qualified him to become a priest. So also his work now as a priest is what qualifies him to become king. It's a buildup. Because he's prophet and because he's priest, that's what qualifies him to be a king. And we'll see that as we go along as well. Now, when Christ uh, is king, usually the, the idea many times is we look at what we know as kingdoms in this world and how kings operate. The kingdom of Christ is a totally different kingdom. Christ is not a king who sits and rules over his people. He actually shares his rule with his people. He is a sympathetic king, a king who was tempted, who was tried like us, a king who is, who is interceding for us right now as a priest. When he becomes a king, he is one who is intimately acquainted with our experience and with what we have gone through. He is our redeemer and he opens to us this kingdom and says, you share this kingdom with me. And the Bible says, we calls us, we are co-heirs with with Christ. That's his work as king. And so prophet and priest qualifies him to be the most righteous king this earth has ever known or will ever know. That's what we're looking forward to. But uh, a few verses that give us a few uh, encouraging thoughts and ideas. Let's uh, have a look at them. Well, we already looked at that. Next stage is king. Luke 22. Verse 29, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This was an answer to the question when the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. Like, you know, what do we get out of this deal? You know, we made a great sacrifice. Christ says, listen, you don't know what, you, you don't know what I've got in store for you. God has appointed to me a kingdom. And in this kingdom, I'm, I have thrones for you to sit and judge and to rule. Not, not to rule like on earth oppressively, but Christ shares the privileges that he has with his people. That's what he's saying right here. And uh, at the close of Christ's priestly ministry is when the next stage will begin. I want to find out, we see, I want to pinpoint where does this transition take place from priest to king? What happens? In Luke 19, Christ gives us a bit of an insight. Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Who's the nobleman here? It's Christ. He goes into a far country. What's that? That's when he left and he went to his father in heaven. And one of the things that happen while he is in heaven is he receives a kingdom, right? Now, when Jesus gave the parable, he says he entrusted his vineyard to all these workers. And then he left them and he goes away to a far country. And in verse 15, it tells us, And it came to pass that when he was returned from this far country, Having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man 
had gained by trading. This is the parable of the talents. I'm sorry, I, I confused you there. I mentioned the, the vineyard. It's the talents. Uh, but the point here is this. When Christ returns, it says, having received a kingdom. So his work as a high priest right now is receiving a kingdom. Correct? Because it says he goes to a far country. He gives talents. He goes to a far country to receive a kingdom. That's his work right now as a priest. His work as a priest, he is receiving this kingdom. And when his subjects of the kingdom are all made up, and all his enemies are made his footstool, then he finishes his work as priest and comes as a king in this kingdom. You with me? And so this is why we understand his work as a priest is he is investigating all the subjects that make up his kingdom. That's the reception of his kingdom. He's not going to receive buildings and as such. He's receiving the kingdom is made up of his subjects, really. And so that's what Christ is referring to. In uh, John 14, let me just... Uh, familiar verse to all of us. John 14, verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Generally, we understand this verse. Uh, it's a very comforting and encouraging verse. It's a favorite. It's a beautiful verse. Uh, we understand that Christ is going to prepare for us, you know, mansions, rooms, buildings, a place to dwell. Uh, this is not the primary point Christ is referring to. When Christ left his disciples, he's describing here his work as a priest. Preparing a place for us, brothers and sisters, is to ensure that we have a rightful place in heaven. That we occupy a rightful place in the kingdom. This is his work as a priest. He's preparing for us a place, not just a physical place. Of course, that's there. I'm not trying to deny that. But that's not the end of the story. We, we look at that and focus on that, and that's good, but there is more. His work as a priest now is to prepare for us a kingdom. That's what he says, I'll go away and prepare. And we know that the next stage after he went away is a priest. So his work as a priest is to prepare a place in the kingdom for his people, in the physical kingdom of heaven. I'll clarify a few things in a minute. But you with me so far? And then he says, then when that happens, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I will come again is at the end of his work as a priest, where it says he went to a far country to receive a kingdom. And then having received the kingdom, he came back and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. So that is what his kingdom is about. And this is his work as a priest. That's why as a priest, that's a prerequisite for him being a king. It actually prepares for the next step. They all prepare and build up on each other. In Daniel 7, we have a description of that. <clears throat> Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Of course, this is Christ coming before the father and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This is talking about Christ coming before the Father, working and functioning as a priest. In his work as a priest, at the end of his work as a priest, he receives, he is given this dominion and glory and a kingdom. That's what 
happens at the end of his priesthood. Because by that time, his enemies would have been made his footstool. And so he receives this kingdom. And receiving his kingdom, this kingdom, of course, is one that lasts forever and shall not be destroyed. It also says here that <clears throat> how many nations serve him? All nations serve him. Why is that? Because all the nations that refused to serve him would have been destroyed. And this is what's happening right now. This process is who's on Christ's side and who's not on Christ's side. Because the time will come when he's king. And when he's king, all nations will serve him. And so the enemies would have been dealt with. And so when he receives this kingdom, he comes a second time and he deals with those enemies, which we understand happens uh, at the second coming. Now this, this event is important and we shall see also as far as the consistency of what we found with the other offices and roles of Christ. But this event is so important, it's actually announced in heaven. It's announced in heaven in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11 is the seventh angel. Verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders who sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. I want you to think about what's said in this verse for a minute, because this verse is really parallel to what happens at the close of Christ's work as a priest. It says here, All the kingdoms of the world are going to become what? The kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Has that happened yet? There's a lot of uncertainty in the audience. <laughs> no, the answer is no. It has not happened yet. And it says, and He shall reign forever and ever. What's that signifying? His office as? As king. This is talking about the time when His enemies will be made His footstool. And then all that's left is all who will be faithful to Him. And that's when he will reign for, uh, forever and ever as a king. Christ referred to that when he spoke to Caiaphas. He says, you'll not see me again until you see me coming down on the right hand of power. That's what he's referring to. He says, you'll see me when I usher in my physical kingdom. You see, they misunderstood the physical and the spiritual kingdom. Christ set up his spiritual kingdom when he was here on earth. But the physical kingdom, when he is king and anointed as king, as we shall see, is yet coming. Of course, that's why in Revelation, we read about him as coming, coming as a king. Revelation 17, 14. These shall make war with the Lamb. These are the people who resist the nations that do not obey. Shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Sorry. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is what's referring to as Christ, King of kings. And this is where he deals with his enemies. So when Christ comes the second time, he comes with earthly, sorry, he comes with kingly authority. In other words, his priestly office is finished. So here's the question. Christ was anointed as prophet. Christ is anointed as priest. Will Christ be anointed as king? And if so, when does that happen or where do we read about that in scriptures? Now for the, for the pattern to be, uh, you know, consistent, the answer should be, Yes, of course, he'll be anointed. And if he's going to be anointed, who's going to anoint him? The Father. And there probably will have, something will, uh, will have to be said about him being a son. This is what happened. The Father anointed him as baptism and said, this is my son. 
God said to his son, you're anointed as a high priest. And also when he became king, that's what we find. We read about it actually in the book of Psalms chapter 2. Notice what it says. Psalm chapter 2 verse 6 and 7. Yet have I set, or in the Hebrew it actually means anointed. It literally means anointed. Yet have I anointed my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We talk about this verse and refer to this verse many times as the one that talks about Christ being begotten of the Father. And verse 7 certainly does. But we cannot miss what verse 6 is talking about, brothers and sisters. Verse 6 is a prophecy about Christ being anointed as king. And the reason why he's anointed as king, it says here, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. It doesn't mean Christ is going to be begotten when he is anointed as king. It means that his anointing as king is also based on the fact that he is the begotten son. It's because he's the begotten son who took on humanity. That's what qualified him to be a prophet. Because he's the begotten son who now became our sympathetic high priest. That's what qualifies him to be anointed in that capacity. And he is the same one, the begotten son who took on humanity, who is to be our anointed king. That's what it's talking about here. It's a pro prophecy about the Messiah. And so we go back to our, our chart. And so the commencement of Christ's work as king is when he receives a kingdom. And this is when he is anointed. Yet have I set my king, or yet have I anointed my king on my holy hill of Zion. Of course, David was a type of that, the King David on earth. He was uh, an important type for that. And Christ sits on the throne of his father David as king and so that's why when Christ comes the second time he comes already as king of kings and he comes down and he treads down his enemies they are dealt with and all that are left are the faithful and this is where Christ says you know I'll come and take you receive you so that where I am there you might be also so those three times his anointing every time there is reference made to his sonship and that's because the sonship of Christ is a foundational point. I'm going to go to a familiar verse that we all know and notice something very interesting here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. Who's, who's talking here? Christ is speaking through Solomon, right? He's talking about when he was begotten. Verse 23. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. And then a little later he talks about being brought forth. And the word set up here is the same one in the Hebrew that means anointed. So Christ, when he was begotten of the Father as a divine being, not begotten in Bethlehem, I just want to make clarify. When he was begotten of the Father in the eternity of the past before anything was ever made, when he was begotten, he was anointed. This is the very first anointing of Christ as the divine Son of God. He's the begotten Son. And it's based on that anointing, as it says in Proverbs, it's based on that, that each time when He takes up an important and significant role or phase in the plan of salvation, God the Father anoints Him again to fulfill that capacity, and He mentions His Sonship. And again and again. And so the Sonship of Christ, brothers and sisters, Christ being the only begotten Son of God, is not something that we go on about because we just want to push something. It is the most important thing that qualifies Christ to do what he does, according to God the Father. And that pattern there is 
quite significant and interesting. Okay, I'll uh, I'll keep going here so we can we can get to the end. Second Timothy four one. Paul tells Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Never really stood out to me before that Paul actually says that in that verse. When Christ comes a second time, it will be at his appearing and his kingdom because he has received this kingdom during his work as a priest. He comes as king to establish this physical kingdom. The first thing he does is he puts down the other kingdoms that are opposed to him and to his reign and to his rule. Now the beautiful thing about this and uh, what I really find very encouraging is the fact that this kingdom is not Christ alone. I mentioned that already, but it's mentioned in a number of places. But uh, I want to put some other events here because of questions that people might have in their mind. I'll just put up our chart again. <clears throat> and in looking at that, we find that the, when Christ receives a kingdom and finishes his work as a priest, that would be, of course, synonymous with the close of probation. Because Christ is no longer interceding. His work as a priest is finished. In other words, probation has come to an end or closed. We refer to that event. Uh, and it, was, it is after that time, sometime after that, that he actually comes in the event that we know as the second coming. And so this is, these are the three different, uh, well, the two there, but anyway, the transitions between the, the three different stages. And when Christ comes as king, in that capacity, he actually continues for how long? Forever, because there's nothing else after that as far as him fulfilling. The plan of salvation is accomplished, is complete in all its different phases, and he rules, and his kingdom will be established where? On earth, not, not in heaven. A thousand years is just a little bit of, a, of an interlude, a bit of a holiday, long holiday. He sits on the throne of his father David where? Here. And this is a point that uh, it's important to keep in mind. And so when he comes at the third coming, this is actually when his coronation as king occurs. Not his anointing. He's already anointed as king. But his official coronation where all his subjects will be present to see him crowned as the king who sits on the throne of his father David. We know that event. We read about it in the last chapter in the book, Great Controversy. Remember in the New Jerusalem? And there's a throne high and lifted up and Christ is coronated. Now, the coronation is different to the anointing, right? So I don't want us to confuse that. That's not when he becomes king. When he comes a second time, he's already king. That's when he's actually in this, this, this is a ceremony. That's going to be a big party, okay? Don't miss that one. <laughs> big party to attend. Everyone will be there, brothers and sisters. Even Satan will be there to witness that event. If, if you remember. And so Christ's work, brothers and sisters, right now, Christ's work is to prepare us to be there, to be subjects of his kingdom. That's his work as a high priest. And it, this gave me a, a, a deeper and fresher appreciation of, you know, wow, Christ is, is, is doing that. It's not that I didn't know it, but just kind of, you know, crystallized things a little bit in my mind. I just pray the same, the same will be your experience. Like this kingdom that is coming, Christ already established it in the hearts of his people here on earth. You can't be a subject of his kingdom when he comes as king, unless you're already a subject of his kingdom now. And in Daniel 7, we have this beautiful promise, Daniel 7, 27. And the kingdom 
and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. That's what Christ is going to do with his kingdom. He's going to give it to his people. And this beautiful verse in Luke 12, when Christ here was here on earth, this is what he comforted his disciples with. Luke 12 and verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you what? The kingdom. And I like how he said here, fear not, because there was reason to fear. You know, the disciples were a small band being spoken about uh, against every Sabbath in the synagogue. All the leaders and elders would talk about this band of heretics following this teacher all around the countryside, stirring up the people. There's a lot of reason for, for things to fear, you know, for the disciples to have things to, to fear and worry about. And, and the outlook looked rather bleak. And then Christ would tell them about him going to die. And, and it just looked like it was bad news. And the same thing happens for us today, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of things that happen to cause us to to fear, to worry, whether it be things to do with the home, things to do with the family, things to do with work, things to do with our bills or whatever it might be. Things that the devil throws at us through the world to cause us to fear, to cause us to worry, to cause us to wonder. Christ assures us with the same promise. He says, listen, don't worry. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's pleasure. What gives God happiness and pleasure and joy? is not to get your worship and your prayers and get all these things from you. What gives God pleasure and joy is to give to us the kingdom. And this is what Christ is doing right now. He is receiving this kingdom on our behalf. That's why he says, fear not little flock. So I just want to, you know, encourage us all, myself and you as well, with this beautiful thought, the brothers and sisters, we have a coming king. He's our priest now, and we can prepare for that kingdom. If we truly allow him to rule in our hearts as our high priests. If we truly surrender all to him, we will really have nothing to fear. We'll realize that what we see around us in this world and all these things, that's not the end of the story. The real story is what we do not see with our eyes. The scriptures reveal that to us and we see it and we believe it by faith. And so I'll close with that and I'll just uh, put that up for review. Let us trust our prophet, believe what he said, what he declared, and let us look to our high priest right now. And that's the only way we can prepare for our coming king, if we truly behold him where he is. And so that's my appeal, and that's, that's my challenge to you, that his work as a prophet will change us into his image. That's what the theme of the camp is all about, right? Into his Image. That's what Christ does as a prophet. Uh, sorry, as a priest. I'm sorry, I said prophet, I think. As a priest. As a priest, he's changing us into his image. Let's allow him to accomplish that and finish that change. That's when he will finish his work. Let's uh, pray. If you were blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through his son, Jesus.